This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Look, all I'm saying, bro, if, if Apollo Creed could take a chance on some underdog, why can't you? We are a long way from the first Rocky movie, but five decades, and I'm not even going to try to figure out how many sequels later, the story remains the same. Underdogs becoming champions, only to become underdogs again. That was Jonathan Majors in a clip from the new Creed 3, which is currently in wide release. This week, sequels galore. We'll talk Creed 3, Scream 6, and Film Spotting Madness Part 9. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Film Spotting. As we're taping this, Josh, the Oscars are just a few days away. But you will not hear any Oscar talk on this show because we shared our Oscar predictions, best case scenarios, a few disappointments on last week's show with our guest Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Do you think Team Austin Butler has found Michael on social media yet? (laughs) I hope so. I hope they're giving him grief because you and I are aligned on this. Big fans of Austin Butler and Elvis. I don't I don't know what Michael's problem was. It's true. We're both big fans of Austin Butler and that performance in Elvis. But come on, if we have to choose between Austin Butler and Michael Phillips, Michael Phillips is winning every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Well, yeah, if you put it that way, of course. (laughs) You can find that show where you found this one at filmspotting.net, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Film Spotting Madness Best of the 60s continues this week. Michael was not going to be around for any of those shenanigans. We are on to the round two matchups later in the show. We'll talk through some of those matchups along with round one results, including, Josh, a couple of very upsetting upsets. So I hear. Round two voting is open now. 
at filmspottingmadness.com or at filmspotting.net slash madness. You have until 11 a.m. on Monday, March 13th to vote. And if you're listening to this for the first time and you have no idea what we're talking about or you have heard Madness talk many times before but never participated, don't overthink it. Just go to filmspottingmadness.com. Pick the movies you like best. Vote. Have some fun. Why not? This is also the point where we provide our weekly reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating and a positive review. Yeah, we want to thank Scott Ross, Hank Worcester, and Vicar Dave in the UK. They each left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this past week. Share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now it's time to get back in the ring with Michael B. Jordan and review Creed 3. Hey, my man, can I help you? Let me get an autograph. Nah, I ain't signing an autograph. So you get off my car. You don't remember me, huh? Damien. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I kept myself in shape. I still got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. Thank you. Here's what happened with you two. I didn't tell you. We was like brothers. I was the best, though. But I never got a chance to prove that. That's cute. Hey, hey, what you doing, man? We have our well-documented Rocky differences, Adam. Film spotting family members with access to the archives, they can listen to us shadow box our way through a review of the original Rocky on episode 821. We are, however, on the same page when it comes to the franchise's godchildren, the Creed films. We're both fans of Creed and Creed 2, though we haven't reviewed them together here on the show. The new Creed 3 gives us another chance to consider the series. Rather than looking back, though, I want to start with what's new. Jonathan Majors, appearing here as Damian Anderson, a childhood friend of now-retired boxing champ Adonis Creed played by Michael B. Jordan, who also directs this time around. After serving 18 years in prison for reasons I won't spoil, Damien suddenly shows up at the training facility Adonis owns, hoping he will help revive the boxing career that Damien dreamed of before he was imprisoned. This is Major's second time in a month playing a new adversary in a long-running franchise after his appearance in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. For those of us who have followed Majors since 2019's The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and that includes us, Adam, considering his performance was one reason the movie won the film-spotting Golden Brick that year, seeing Majors in such parts is cause for deep ambivalence. I'm glad he's getting the high-profile parts and the attention. I wonder if such material is the best use of his considerable talents. As I reported after seeing Quantumania, I'm less enthused about his commitment to the next batch of MCU films, even though he does have his moments there. How are we feeling in the wake of Creed Three, Adam? Is the film worthy of Jonathan Majors? Or, given our appreciation for the other Creeds, is his performance worthy of these films? Yeah, we really have to start with Majors, and this is how high I am on Jonathan Majors generally as an actor, but including this performance— Watching him and Jordan together, I'm sitting in the theater. I concocted this entire life imitating art while making art fantasy in my head where every day on set, just like Adonis and Dame are engaged in this rivalry with Dame as the unknown, ambitious up-and-comer, and Adonis is 
way more established and famous, and he's undergoing now this crisis of conscience and masculinity and confidence. Jordan was like, what was I thinking casting this guy opposite <laughs> me? <laughs> I had Duke's line to Apollo and Rocky II ringing around in my head when Apollo wants a rematch with Rocky, and he says, he's all wrong for us, baby. We don't need no man like that in our lives. Yes, of course, Jonathan Major's talent makes him good for the movie, should make him good for any movie that he's cast in. But he is so naturally magnetic and so in control of his choices as an actor that I feel like you have to be very comfortable with yourself as the star of the movie to go up against him. That's how much of a force Jonathan Majors is. Now, this is completely my invention. Let's be clear. They appear to have a wonderful, collaborative, supportive relationship. The point is, that's how good Majors is. That's the energy he brings to every scene and every frame. And just like his character, it is the more established Jordan that has to step up and prove that he's worthy. And you mentioned the MCU films, maybe because of Majors being in Quantumania and Jordan being part of this universe as well. One of our favorite villains in the MCU, Killmonger from Black Panther. Yep. It occurred to me that the checklist for what we expect and need from a franchise superhero movie and a franchise boxing movie are basically the same thing these days. Who's the bad guy? What's the opponent like? And does it deliver a thrilling, satisfying final showdown? How's the fight? How is it shot? What's the new wrinkle we maybe haven't seen before? Those are really the two big questions we ask about Marvel movies and we ask certainly about boxing movies. There's an offshoot of that last question too about how it's shot with boxing movies more so than other sports movies, although it's kind of universal. We also get to look forward to the training montage, usually. I'll get into that later. I'll hold off on my full scorecard for now. But on the opponent front, to answer your question, Dame may not have any superpowers, but Majors does. It's acting. And he is more imposing and more fun to watch and more human than most Marvel villains. Majors inevitably imbues Dame with dimensionality. I do wish the screenplay put in overall as much work as Majors does. Hmm. Once the fight is on, I feel like he becomes a cog in the machine moving toward fight night, moving toward that final showdown. So the Creed franchise is worthy of Majors, but Creed 3 is the franchise's least worthy installment for me. Oh, the least. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, we'll get back to that. We'll also get back to the final fight. It makes me wonder if both the MCU and these Creed films are suffering from one of the same issues when it mm -hmm. comes to their climactic action moments. But yeah, let's let's return to that. Uh, I'm with you. I mean, Majors, and you're so right. The blueprint was right there. Michael B. Jordan knew what he was setting up here because he did it with Killmonger. And he probably thought to himself, I'm secure enough to be the Chadwick Boseman in this scenario yep. because he came into Black Panther and as you said, didn't really steal the movie, but, um, you know, definitely elevated it with his villainous performance in ways that surprised us and that it just made that one of the better MCU films because mm -hmm. of his villainous performance. And that's Majors is doing the same thing here. And here's the, the, 
it's not only the charisma behind both performances and the energy they bring and the sort of threat slash uh, appeal they both have. It's also that these are villains, and you could even say villains in quotation marks. I think particularly with Dame, you could say that. Villains with valid points. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference, right? right? We may have decried Killmonger's methods, but we understood his philosophy and probably sympathize with some elements of it. The same thing is going on here when it comes to Dame and his predicament. And even before we learn the narrative beats that earn some of that sympathy, some of which we should let people discover for themselves, probably, even before we know those facts, it's all in Major's performance that mm -hmm. this is a guy we should both want to succeed while also be wary of. And we get it in that first scene where they have lunch together. That sequence, to your point about, you know, what was going on on set and, mm -hmm. and what I wish that <laughs> could have. That's where I started thinking about it. Uh, that's where I wish that scene could have just gone on for like another 10 minutes and there mm -hmm. would have been three more of those <laughs> over the course of the film. I think we get some moments that try to recreate that of intensity and confrontation, but that's the scene, right? They're sitting there. Dame has shown up in the parking lot of Adonis's gym, and he's a little taken aback by seeing him again. We already know in how they're interacting with each other that there is history there that we will yet discover and that the two of them are not speaking to each other. And then you get to that table where they're sitting together and Majors gives Damien, he's, he's bristling at the table with shame, with anger. He's absolutely a man who's unsure about how to move in society after all those years away. Yet there's also a little hint of wily ambition before he lays out his plan. You get right? a sense, a little sense he has a plan. He has a plan. And then we start to get some of these other details, right? So, so Adonis brings him in as aspiring partner and Dame throws a few dirty tricks in his fight with the, you know, the champ who Adonis is really representing. Um, and that sort of stuff, you know, starts to put us more at ease. And so, yeah, it's that tension in the performance separate from bolstered by the narrative that the screenplay will give us. But in the performance, it's that tension where Majors makes him this vibrating threat. We're mm -hmm. never quite sure what to make of. And it's the best thing about the film for me, and it's probably the reason I would put it slightly ahead of Creed Two, but I think that might come back to our different relationships with the Rocky franchise. You know, if Good. if if you love Rocky as much as you know, I I know you do, Adam. A remake of Rocky Four sounds great. If you don't, it's like okay, but Creed, you were doing something different. Here, I think the most different thing the franchise is doing is giving us this character and a performance at Major's level. And that's what I resonated with about the film the most. I put money up for you. Put the gloves on your hands like you asked. That's enough, Philly. <laughs> you, you put the gloves on my hands? Oh, homie. You must be punchy. Because <laughs> if memory serves, you used to carry my gloves. Get your sh and get out the gym. Let me be clear. I do think that Creed two and Rocky four are very different films, but I take your point and I understand the influence the former had on the latter. You talking about that restaurant scene made me think appropriately. It's kind of like the beginning of a boxing match, them first meeting each other. They're 
confined by the frame, almost like they're in a ring, a two shot, and then cutting between these single shots. There's no movement to it. There's no physicality. No punches are being thrown, at least actual punches. But verbally, psychologically, they're feeling each other out. They're not even sparring quite yet. They're just feeling each other out before the first person throws a punch. I don't know whether or not that was deliberate or something they were thinking about during the scene, but you certainly get that sense. And you used the word I mention a major as him being magnetic. You said charisma. I think charisma is the right word, even though when most of us hear it, we think of a bigger, more flamboyant presence, a more gregarious presence. That's certainly not what majors is here. And I don't know if he's that really in any film. We'll see. We hopefully have a lot more performances from him to come, but it is a mostly subdued charisma. And the thing that really struck me about this performance. I'm going to try to add to what you were saying here, Josh. Everything he's saying to Adonis and everything he's doing is rooted in falsity (laughs) because he does have that plan and he is trying to maneuver things to his will. But everything about it is honest. You know, when a character is setting another character up, has nefarious intentions for that character... He's playing chess and every move is calculated towards this predetermined outcome, but all of the history playing out between them feels absolutely real. So you get these complex notes being hit in a lot of these conversations. Speaking of villains, it's absurd to make this comparison, but as I was thinking through this and what I love so much about his performance in this point specifically, it's a little bit like Darth Vader (laughs) and there's a bit of a machine like quality to Major's dame, right? He is he is that focused and that relentless in his pursuit. And that line, he's more machine than man now. With Major's, you feel that way about him, but you always feel the man peeking out from under the mask. The honesty that you're talking about, that's the emotional honesty that Mm -hmm. is the shame I mentioned and the anger I mentioned. Those things are all true and those are things we can all relate to. Now, the plan as it develops, that's where we start to take distance and step away and and say, okay, this guy's actually, we understand where he's coming from, but his response is a little unhinged. Again, we're back to Killmonger here. And I think that's where the script, it sounds like we're maybe in agreement here, loses its handle on this a little bit. And uh, we should say the screenplay by Keenan Kugler and Zach Balin. You know, this is tricky territory in a way to choose a character like this to be a pure villain because you're, you know, possibly unnecessarily demonizing a group of people formerly incarcerated who already society is suspicious of. So you got to be careful here. And I think the movie, for the most part, avoids doing that. But there's a section, not the training montage, but a, a villain montage that comes maybe about a third in with Dame that I think is thoroughly unnecessary because we're already unnerved by him. And for me, it pushed him into that pure bad guy territory. You know, it was kind of like he's in his apartment, his dingy apartment alone, looking threatening. And we didn't, we just didn't need that. And it also makes things tricky in terms of how you're portraying a character like this. So I think the movie does go back and forth on that. And as long as it's ambiguous about how we feel about Dame, how Adonis feels about him, because those reveals will suggest that Adonis is more connected to the trajectory of Dame's life than 
he has presented to people in his life, including Bianca, Tessa Thompson, his wife, you know, that that's all the complication a good movie needs and a good characterization needs. I do think the the film on occasion lets go of the rope there in ways that aren't necessary. Yeah. And I mentioned the scorecard. I'm divided on the villain, not because of Majors' performance, but in terms of how deep it goes and what they end up doing with him or don't doing with him. I mentioned the training montage. So I won't bore you since I do know your feelings about the Rocky movies, but even you can immediately start to envision some of these moments from these films, whether you want to or not. Rocky running through the streets of Philly, punching slabs of meat in one, chasing chickens in round two, in film two, I should say, the sequel. Apollo taking him back to the streets, to his gym in L.A., those races on the beach in Rocky three. And that is the film. Rocky three is the one this movie feels the closest to as our friends at the next picture show are discussing this week. And then you go Rocky four. I mean, running away from the evil Russians up the mountain, Rocky's chopping down trees. He's pulling sleds through the snow. Rocky is going full on man against nature. And they're cross cutting that with Drago's inhuman high tech, sterile training and steroid injections. The only one of the three things I said, Villain, how it's shot, the final showdown in training montages. This is the only one that's a straight up L for me. Everything about the montage we get here felt uninspired, felt unmotivated. And what I mean by unmotivated, Josh, is I'm asking myself the whole time, why are they why are they training this way? For what purpose? All those other montages I mentioned have their own narrative within them. They're microcosms for the larger conflict of the movie. Mm. Here it felt totally perfunctory. It felt obligatory. It didn't do anything for me to push the conflict or the characters forward. It was a miss here. And I do expect that of a Rocky film. Yeah. I mean, I know you got to have them. This is on me. I'm like the equivalent. um, My daughter, who's a big Marvel fan, always says like, yeah, once the fighting, you know, the big galactic fighting goes on after a few minutes, I just, I don't want to, but I just check out. My mind just goes somewhere else. That's me and Rocky training montages. It's like, oh, here here it comes. You know, that's fine. And I watch. I don't leave the room, but I do kind of start, I don't know, thinking about the grocery list or something. So yeah, I'll take your word it. for it that this one does not hold up to to all the others. Yeah, it it doesn't, again, just in terms of there being no substance to it whatsoever. It's there to get us to the fight. It's there to be a bridge to get us to the fight. It doesn't add anything at all. And then the final match. Oh, yeah. We definitely do get a new visual wrinkle here. And it's a bold one. And I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen this yet. So I'll say it's the first boxing movie I've seen anyway that goes full-on metaphysical with a heavy anime influence. But I did, on the whole, find that fight lacking. And it's not so much because of the action itself or how it is rendered, but because of how we get there. The Training montage, the narrative leading up to and surrounding it, the misses, the deficiencies with Major's character I mentioned. Overall, does the movie still mostly work? Yeah, it does, because I like these characters. I like these actors. And if you hit enough sports movie beats with enough conviction, and I think this movie has that, I'm likely going to be on board. I didn't I didn't have a bad time with Creed 3, but as I said, it's my least favorite of the trilogy so far. It's 
too sleek, too rushed, too contrived to deliver the emotional payoffs it promises. The most glaring void is Adonis's incomplete arc, actually. I don't think the movie does enough with that character that they spend so much time setting up what his deficiencies are in this moment. The challenges to him as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a boxer, he's withholding emotionally. He's withholding psychologically. He can't express himself. He can't be vulnerable. And Tessa Thompson in these scenes, I think, does an amazing job because she's an amazing actress and she takes material that I don't think gives her a lot to do either or feels fairly cliche and makes it something more complicated. But he's a man who thinks all of his problems can be solved with his fists. That's something she challenges him on. And I think the movie wants to challenge that notion. But by the end, it really only ends up validating it. It only ends up validating it. And the, the Adonis we meet at the beginning is more or less the same Adonis we meet at the end of the film. He, he has his manhood challenge. He stands up to it. And I'm kind of left going, so what? Yeah, I, it, this is one of the you know the issues I have with a lot of these movies is as complicated as they try to be, it ultimately comes down to what I believe is like a false presumption that all of the problems presented, and particularly in terms of Adonis's personal life, can be solved by winning one match. And I understand that's the construction, but it's almost something that the more nuanced the movies themselves get the falser that feels. That's right. And for me, I think they struggled in terms of Adonis and character motivation right with two. It was a strength of one. We had all that great backstory, you know, a lot of thought put into how to connect to the Rocky story. And it was so beautifully done. And really, Creed II for me felt very much like the choices he made, especially once in that film where Bianca learns she's pregnant, they agree to marry. Like this guy's whole world has shifted in terms of, and I'm not putting it simply like he made the wrong decision by fighting, but all of a sudden, every decision he made in regards to their relationship even was all about getting us to that fight, right? And there's a degree of that at play here. I do think with the character of Dame, there are a few more interesting complications at play in terms of the guilt Adonis begins to feel, questioning this place that he has found himself as the champ. A lot of time is spent at what a luxurious life he and Bianca have now. She is a recording artist and he is a retired champ. And so I think there's some interesting stuff going on there, but I would agree with you. It does eventually give way to the need to somehow get them in the ring. And the real problem is to get Adonis to win so that all these things are supposedly answered when they're really not. And I Mm -hmm. I think there is, there's a rushed coda to this movie as well that was a little Agreed. disappointing but let's go to that the the um the match itself and i think you're right not to describe the bold choice so i'll just say it's reliant on special effects this is the metaphysical element that you were talking about i think that was the only instance where the increasing use of special effects in these movies actually worked because they did something that could not really have been done otherwise, Mm -hmm. did something thematically interesting and interesting in terms of the characters. I wish that had almost maybe been extended more. It's used for maybe a minute or two during the match, but otherwise what we get, Adam, and here goes, this goes back to my connection to the MCU and the spectacles at the end of these movies that are increasingly given over to 
CGI that does not look convincing at all. Creed 2 had this as well, where the whole background of the arena is virtual. So they're shooting against green screens for the final match. And I remember, and this is fresh in my mind because I just watched Creed 2 for the first time last week, actually thinking something was wrong with my TV because Mm. all of the sudden these characters look like they're floating in space and everyone in the background looks weird. And And you don't mean the part where they actually kind of are floating in space. In Creed (laughs) 2? In this one. No, 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 no. That, that's my point. Like if you're going to use green screen, Mm -hmm. then use it for something metaphysical where we all accept that this is not supposed to really be what we're seeing. But they use it here, as I said, for the backgrounds of the arenas, or in this case, I think it's Dodger Stadium where the climactic yes. fight takes place, right? And that's all the backgrounds there appear to be fake. And it's not just a matter of not liking special effects. It's, for me, that it just degrades. If any sort of sports movie needs us to feel the visceral elements of the action, I feel like it's boxing. Really needs that. We need to be in the ring. And here, even the slow motion matrix style shots of crucial punches that we get, you know, we're so far away from blood and sweat at that point. We're only experiencing things that our mind knows has been constructed far away from an actual mat in an actual arena. And, and you know, Creed 3, there's an early flashback to Damon Adonis as teenagers when they are hanging out and they go to this backroom boxing match, Right. That stands out to me, even though it's not that long of a sequence or really an entire match that we're used to, that stands out to me as the most gripping Mm. moment of boxing in the film. Why? Because we're in a room where we can see the low ceilings. We know the people beyond the ring, and granted, it's only like 20 rows deep here, are all there. And that made all the difference for me. And I, I'm sorry, you could say, well, yeah, but think about how much it costs to use an actual arena. And uh, well, I'm sorry, this is Creed three. I mean, they've they've gotten enough of our money. Let's spend it so that the experience of actually seeing a fight feels as gripping and vital as, to my memory, the ones did in Creed, and certainly, you know, in the earlier Rocky films. Yeah, I think even the very final shot of this film, or at least what I recall to be the final shot of the film is one that is very it's not ostentatious but it's very artfully shot very carefully composed and framed in terms of the way we see michael b jordan in the shot and the night sky behind him and everything about it to your larger point josh felt hollow yeah (laughs) it felt like a beautiful shot but completely empty unfortunately empty is a good word creed three is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I had this secret. There's a darkness inside of me. It followed me here. And it's going to keep coming for us. We share a certain history. A little bit of the trailer for Scream 6, the sequel to 2022's franchise reboot, which, perhaps confusingly, was just called Scream. Like last year's Scream, the new one is co-directed by Matt Bettinelli and Tyler Gillett. Josh, you are now a Scream completist. Indeed. And overall, it would seem, based on 
what I saw on Letterboxd, you are a fan of the series. So please enlighten us, fill us in on how this new storyline actually relates to the series origins. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know if we want to take the time to get all into that, Adam. A lot has happened. I guess I will say, because it is one of the intriguing things about Scream 6, that Sam, played by Melissa Barrera, the main character since last year's Scream, and no spoiler, if you've seen that one, you know she is the unfortunate daughter of the killer in the original Scream. So there is family history here, which obviously plays a part in Scream 2022. But what's interesting in Scream 6 is the way they toy with the idea that Sam, in surviving the slaughter of the previous film in a way that required her to kill, has maybe developed a little bit of bloodlust. And they toy with that. I think it makes Barrera's performance more interesting than it was in the previous film, though I like the previous film better than this one. I think they both justify have justified their existence. There's that low reheat bar we have to use so often these days, but I did enjoy this one. I think the other one maybe was a little more clever. Some of the genre commentary is feeling a bit stale. Perhaps that's just because it came so quickly on the heels of the other one. But I do like how they play with this idea of the heroine being at some points in the this film, you think, is she the suspect for this new round of killing? So they play with that a little bit and have some fun. I've got to say, though, the real reason I'm in favor of this film is an incredible sequence set in a New York City subway. This one, you know, nodding to Friday the 13th, part eight does take place in New York City. And I'm sure other thrillers, so many films have made use of suspense sequence on subway trains, right? What they do here is it takes place around Halloween. So Sam and her friends, at this point, someone in the ghost face getup is after them. So they're threatened, afraid. They get stuck in a subway car, jammed with people, all wearing masks. And as happens nowadays in Halloween, these are quite often adults in masks of horror icons. So in this car, you have a couple of ghost faces. You've got some Jason, some Michaels, some pinheads, even a Babadook, which, you know, made my heart glow seeing a Babadook there in the corner of the subway car. And so it is just a fun way to think about the movie in terms of the horror genre in general, which this series has always done. But also the directors really knocked this thing out of the park. They used the flickering lights of a subway car. Very careful blocking of all these different horror figures and Sam and her friends within the car. And really some very insidious physical acting by the people wearing these masks. You know, the extras or however you want to describe them. Just how they stand a certain way and then the lights go dark and then they come back on and they're standing a little differently. Or they're in a different position in relation to the camera. Again, basic stuff, but not what you get this well handled in every horror film. Not something that the rest of the movie really handles as well in the other scare sequences. So I loved that sequence, enjoyed Barrera's performance a little bit more and what they did with her character. So I'd recommend this for fans of the series. Scream 6, it's currently playing in wide release. If you see it and you agree or disagree with Josh, we would both love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Next week on the show, we're not going to be talking about any sequels, and much to our producer Sam's chagrin, we're not going to be talking about what he is calling the Adam Driver dinosaur movie. I'm guessing he's not alone in that. He's going to be really mad when he hears this later, Josh. But when he brought up 
this Adam Driver dinosaur movie and why weren't we talking about it? I really didn't even know what he was talking about. I didn't I didn't know what the title was until I just looked it up now on IMDb. Did you see the trailer or know anything about it? Because now I'm looking at the poster. I'm seeing Adam Driver. The description is an astronaut crash lands on a mysterious planet only to discover he's not alone. I'm in. Let's change our plans. Let's watch it. I mean, Sam should have just said Adam Driver space dinosaur movie. Yes. And then yes. we would have then we would have been hooked. No, I mean the thing's called 65. How in the heck is anyone supposed to remember that? And I have to say though, I'm intrigued not only by that concept, but this is one, Adam, unless I was cut off the list and you got some invites, not a peep from Chicago publicists in terms of screening yeah. for critics. Is that right? <laughs> Either we're personae non grata or they're not screening it for critics. And you know that intrigues my curiosity. <laughs> of course it does. Anytime, of course it does. Anytime it's completely hidden from critics, I kind of feel like I have to go. If we could find that list, that would be a fun top five. The top oh, five it? best movies an that were not screened for critics. An anti-marathon, perhaps. <laughs> an anti-marathon. I love it. A new franchise for film spotting. We're not going to talk about 65. We are going to go back to 98. A pretty great year for movies. We were looking at anniversary titles to weigh in on, to reconsider. Saving Private Ryan's there. The Truman Show. Rushmore. The Thin Red Line. Out of Sight. Many others. But one stood out, and it especially stood out because of its timing. It did just get released, I think, this week or about a week ago by the time people hear this in March of 1998. Yes, the dude abides. The big Lebowski turns 25. Yeah, and we're really just doing this Sacred Cow Review as a blatant attempt to get free passes to Lebowski Fest. I don't know, maybe that's already happened, but (laughs) if not, you know, this will get us in, I'm sure. The Big Lebowski is currently streaming on Peacock and VOD on most platforms. You know, if you don't have your own DVD copy or I don't know, back in 98, maybe your own VHS copy, you still dust off from time to time. Next week, we will also continue Film Spotting Madness. It will be the Sweet 16 matchups to discuss. And it's our first marathon of the new year, our sight and sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon, another film, Josh, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think is a sequel, and I don't think there are any sequels made from it. Kenji Mizuguchi's film from 1954, Sancho the Bailiff. He has two films, Mizuguchi, in the top 100, Sancho the Bailiff and Yugetsu. Both of those are blind spots for us, but Sancho ranks slightly higher, 75 on the list. Yugetsu came in at 90, so... For better or worse, that's how we decided. I did do a little bit more research than that. Didn't just look at sight and sound. I looked at some other rankings of his film, some other lists. And most people seem to think that if you had to watch just one, Sancho the Bailiff was the one to go with. Yeah. And I mean, you can't go wrong, it seems like. So I'm not too worried about which one we added to our list here. It is Sancho the Bailiff, like many of the titles in our sight and sound marathon. It's streaming on the Criterion channel if you yourself need to catch it for the first time or want to revisit it. It's also available VOD on Amazon and Apple. So if you want more information about this marathon, the Sight and Sound Blind Spot Marathon, or any of our marathons, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. Passes are on sale right now, Josh, for the next iteration of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It runs May 5th through the 11th this year. 
always at the music box, I think. The screenings are held at that venerable institution. It's always a great fest with Chicago or Midwest premieres for some of the most anticipated films of the year. Last year, they had Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. That was a Chicago premiere, as was Cha-Cha Real Smooth, Emily the Criminal, Two Leslie. So the critics here, our colleagues in the CFCA, do a really good job of programming this fest. If you look back at 2021, Sean Baker's Red Rocket played, Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter, and this little movie from Jane Campion you may have heard of, Josh, The Power of the Dog. Yeah, I mean, the track record of this fest at this point is incredibly solid. They've proven they know what they're doing, and so it's definitely one Chicago area film lovers should put on their radar. This year, looking ahead at what they're going to have, the Sundance Breakout Brother that comes from director Clement Virgo and Brian Tallarico called it the first real stunning discovery of the fest when he was over there at Sundance. They're also going to have Slamdance prize winner waiting for the light to change, the feature debut of director Lynn Tran. And those both sound like they might possibly be golden brick contenders this year, Adam. So maybe we'll have to get over to the Chicago Critics Film Festival to check those two titles out. Absolutely. And if not those two titles, here's two more that I can't wait to see. Paul Schrader's new one with Joel Edgerton, Master Gardener, is going to play. And then, maybe even more interesting to me, honestly, sorry, Paul Schrader, is Iris Sachs's Passages. Iris Sachs, the filmmaker who gave us Keep the Lights On and Little Men and Love is Strange. That was 2014, which I had my top 10 of that year. Really underseen movie, but a very good one, Love is Strange. He's back with passages and that stars Franz Rogowski who's so good in those Christian Petzold films among others Transit and Undine how about this in case we were wondering whether or not they were programming the fest just for me the fest is going to feature a 35 millimeter screening of the right stuff which you can just inject into my eyeballs right now wow I I hope they're giving a dad discount away for that one (laughs) they should right I mean I was A kid, a very young kid, when I watched The Right Stuff for the first time and just became obsessed and enamored with the thought of space travel and flight. Way before Top Gun Maverick, I wanted to be Gordon Cooper and Chuck Yeager and John Glenn, all of those pilots who became astronauts. I've never even contemplated, really, the possibility of seeing it on a big screen. I'm my summer is made. My my spring, I should say. May, the whole year is set now, just knowing I can go see the right stuff. I'm going to guess, Adam, not knowing you at that age, but you were kind of a dad as a kid. So this all tracks, all tracks for me. <laughs> Fair enough. It is a not-to-miss event if you are in the Chicagoland area or nearby surroundings. Tickets and information are available at chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Right now, only passes for the fest are on sale. The single movie tickets and the full lineup will be released at a later date. We usually do have our friend Steve Procopi on the show to highlight some of those titles as we get closer. Another quick note for our Chicago area listeners. We have passes for a Tuesday, March 14th screening of John Wick Four. That's going to be at the AMC River East at 7 p.m. So if you're a big John Wick fan, have been waiting for this fourth installment, here's your chance to see it early right here in Chicago at River East. You can get more information on how to enter for those passes at filmspotting.net. Yeah, the link is right there at the top of our main page. And looking at it now, Josh, John Wick 4 would have gone 
very well with Scream 6 and Creed 3. We could have done our top five movies with numbers in the title, which I think maybe we've actually done before. We missed it. We blew it. This is kind of kind of the state of things now, isn't it? This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Into the mouth of madness we go, Josh. Film spotting madness. Best of the 1960s. Round one results. And our round two matchups to highlight, we will also, if there's time, get an update on our internal bracket prediction contest. That's such an ungainly title. We need something a little pithier than internal bracket prediction contest. But I say if there's time because I am decidedly not winning, Josh. Oh, I was wondering why. I think that's the first time I've ever heard the phrase, if there's time, uttered on this podcast. That explains it. Maybe so in 18 years, which speaking of anniversaries as we're taping this we're two days removed from exactly 18 years ago being the day that the first episode of film spotting was published we turned 18 i mean i wasn't even here for all those 18 and a few gray hairs just sprouted on my head (laughs) first we do want to mention madness round two polls are open you can vote at filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. Either URL will take you there. You have until Monday morning, 11 a.m. Central Time, March 13th, to get your votes in. Our Film Spotting family members get a weekly newsletter with up-to-the-minute madness results, invites to early voting, and, yes, expert analysis of all things madness. If that interests you, please consider joining the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. Dot com. In addition to that newsletter, you get early and ad-free access to the show. You get monthly bonus shows. You also could get access to the entire Film Spotting archive. Again, more info, filmspottingfamily.com. But everybody can participate in Film Spotting Madness and the Bracket Challenge. A lot of people have submitted those brackets. A lot of people have voted. We started with 64 titles. We're down to 32. I really... I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but that was the closest I've ever come to sounding like Trump on this show. A lot of people voted. A lot of people <laughs> please, entered. Please, can we move along? Sam, take it out. <laughs> we are down to 32. Our top four seeds, they all sailed through the first round. 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's safe, Josh. It sent Costa Gavras's Z into the endless vacuum of space. Psycho. Checked the Maisel's Brothers salesman, oh, so sad, into room one at the Bates Motel. The salesman, they do spend a lot of time on the road. They didn't check out of this one. David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia abandoned Vera Chitlova's Daisies somewhere in the Sahara. And Billy Wilder's The Apartment changed the locks on Lindsay Anderson's If. Sorry, Malcolm McDowell, you are out of the tournament. All 10 of our top seeds did make it through the first round. So, so far... The bracket committee seems to have picked correctly in terms of identifying the movies that we thought the film spotting audience would be most inclined to continue to vote on in the tournament. Things did start to go a little haywire, starting with the 11th seed, Josh, which Mm. we'll get to in a bit. And we talked about the matchups that were the hardest for us personally last week. Fellini's La Dolce Vita up against Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. Kurosawa's High and Low. Facing off against Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, we heard from a listener. In fact, W. David 
Lichty, who said, Once Upon a Time in the West often tops best Leone lists, and it isn't his best. High and Low often doesn't even place in Kurosawa's top fives when it may actually be his best. I voted for High and Low as hard as that was, but Leone, as expected, took it down pretty handily, 65% to 35%. The Fellini Varda Josh was closer. La Dolce Vita taking it, though, 56% to 44%. Which, you know, I talked about the difficulty of those two. I'm happy with either one moving on, but I really thought Cleo had a chance with all the Varda, I don't want to say reappreciation, but growing love over recent years for Varda. Maybe, maybe if this, you know, poll took place, this bracket took place in five years, more of that would grow and, and Varda would be successful. But yeah, can't complain too much about La Dolce Vita continuing to represent the 60s in this tournament. This was also a difficult matchup for Jacob Espoel. He wrote in La Dolce Vita versus Clio 5 to 7 was pretty clearly the hardest matchup for me. The last time I watched both of them was more than 15 years ago, and I felt that they both deserved a rewatch for this little exercise. My updated opinion is that the They are both still wonderful, and I'm happy that this made me revisit them, and now I'm even less sure about what to choose. I just blacked out and took one. Don't even remember which one. Sure. Sure, Jacob. I think that's the only approach you can take to film spotting madness. In terms of upsets, Josh, there were a couple, most of them, it seems, adversely affecting French cinema. Hmm. This one, I missed the boat on. I incorrectly picked this one. And you surely have to be upset about this upset. How about one of your favorite films, Jacques Tati's Playtime, going against a film I do genuinely love. I love Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger in the film that won the Oscar in 1969 for Best Picture in the Heat of the Night. But I really thought that the reputation, the acclaim, that stature for Playtime would have it advancing at least past the first round. I didn't think in the heat of the night stood a chance, honestly. I probably would have predicted at least 65-35. And not only was I wrong, in the heat of the night, took it. Well, this partly pains me because I do love playtime. I mean, it's a flat-out masterpiece. It would be probably top 10 of the 60s for me if I had to do that. But I can take some comfort in that I did predict in the heat of the night would win it. I just hear people, maybe it's an American thing, but I hear people talking about referring to Mm -hmm. In the Heat of the Night so much more than Playtime. I would have guessed Playtime, unless you're no, you know, maybe in the inner circle of cinephiles, perhaps, as we're finding out, French-leaning cinephiles, it gets some attention, but not as much elsewhere. So, yeah, sad to see Playtime go. Glad to have predicted this one correctly. Yeah, way to rub it in, Josh. You did get this one right. The Tati, maybe I put too much stock in the Sight and Sound Critics poll, the top 100. It came in at number 43 in the heat of the night, is not in that top 100 and probably isn't close. We had it as a 24 seed playtime. We had in the heat of the night at 41, and it was the 41 seed that emerged victorious with 65% of the vote. Dave Allen wrote in, there are some movies that I feel transcend to a real level of cultural importance, and In the Heat of the Night is definitely in that category. Aside from being a thoroughly interesting detective story, the layers of prejudice and hatred this movie navigates is astounding. Poitier's performance is perfect in displaying the indignity of racism without ever losing an ounce of dignity. Steiger's performance is perfect in displaying someone that on some level understands the backwardness and futility of racist culture, but doesn't know if he wants to or can push against it. The power of this film is that it displays the ugliness of prejudice without any attempt to simplify it. RMP also weighed in on this matchup. Some would argue that Playtime is the greatest comedy ever made. 
That's not something that could easily be proven for any film, although I am pretty sympathetic to the case. But I've definitely never seen and can't easily imagine a greater comic set piece than Playtime's extended opening night of the almost but not quite completed restaurant and nightclub. Let's hold open the non-existent door to the next round for M. Hulot. Bows in an awkward but formal manner, then strides off while leaning precariously. Yes, RMP. That's a good description of how he'd do it. We also had a 46 seed defeat our 19 seed. And you know I love the Beatles, Josh. But how our listeners picked a hard day's night over Francois Truffaut's Jules and Jim, not only did I not predict it, I'm... I'm just not sure I can continue going on. I don't think I've ever chided film spotting listeners oh, for on. a vote for a vote in the history of film spotting madness. And I can't believe it. We talked about this matchup and I'm trying to remember you've seen Hard Day's Night, right? Yes. I mean, it's I don't under, people. I guess some people I should say sleep on it as just an excellent piece of cinema. And yeah, I would agree right up there with Jules and Jim. So this is not. This one wasn't surprising to me. I think I I think I predicted this one too. Let me check my okay. let me check my okay. bracket. We'll get there as you check oh, okay. your bracket. Okay. Moving Sorry. on. Moving on. <laughs> Finally, yes, our 11 seed went down to a 54 seed and maybe we really misread the tea leaves on this one by we I mean myself and Sam, but we looked at it this way. Our 11th seeded film simply was one of the most important films of the 20th century. Never mind the 1960s, a film 101 staple that we assumed would survive the first round on reputation alone. But no, the 54 seed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a very good film, by the way, Mike Nichols directing debut, took down Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. It was close. It was the closest matchup of the first round. But nevertheless, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf advancing 51%. I'm with you on this one. Don't understand it. Say that as a fan of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but am completely flummoxed. So I'm just going to move on to some of the comments. Here's Ofer Liebergall. Breathless, breaking the rules in the name of style and rebellion. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Breaking the rules to serve the characters in story. A few Godard films could have made the choice harder for me, but I'm going with Nichols here. Okay. Colton Butcher. I wasn't expecting to be driven mad this early on. High and low losing to Once Upon a Time in the West. I am shocked. Same within the heat of the night. A good movie with an excellent performance. But playtime is freaking Jacques Tati. Some very personal hurts are losing Hara Curry and Andre Rublev. They were my favorite new watches from the shortlist. These results gobsmack me. <laughs> I agree with Sam in the newsletter. It might be time for the French New Wave and post-war Japanese cinema marathons. I thought I knew where the values of the film spotting nation lay. Call them out, Colton. But the people we love the most can hurt us the most. Thanks for putting this together. It's one of my favorite times of the year. You sure about that, Colton? You sound, you sound awfully betrayed. <laughs> you can see all round one results at filmspottingmadness.com. The bracket link is right there. And that brings us to round two. 32 films advanced. Some of the wrong titles advanced. We've covered that. 16 matchups. We're going to get into some of the ones that we, as we like to do, thought were the easiest and the hardest to vote in. And then, yeah, Josh, we'll get to the we'll get to the bracket prediction contest. But you tend to approach these the same. You don't do a lot of homework on this. You want to react in real time. So I'm going to give you the ones that I thought were easiest and the ones I thought were toughest. And 
We'll watch you sweat or not. I'll cast my vote. Here in real time. Okay? Let's do it. In terms of the easiest, there were five of these 16 matchups that I didn't really labor over. And I like all of the films I picked against. Quite a bit, in fact. I just like the other options. And in this case, all the higher seeds. That much more. So in order of easiness to hardest, but still not tough overall, Le Samurai versus what you apparently think is one of the 10 greatest films ever made. Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> now, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, good choice. That's a little hyperbole in terms of 10 greatest ever made, but it is excellent. And thankfully, not underestimated by film spotting listeners. Okay, Le Samurai. <sighs> I one think film I'm has still... Alain Delon, one film has Paul McCartney. What are yeah, you going to do? I, well, I mean, Paul's cute and all, but come on, let's not get ridiculous. I know. Uh, Alain Delon takes that. But that's not how I'm going to vote. I'm actually going to stick with A Hard Day's Night here, Wow, Adam. And personally, this is personally not predicting, though I'd love to see A Hard Day's Night go on a run and be something of a Cinderella for you uh, in this tournament. Loveless Samurai. Um, but thinking it's working in a mode of other genre films of that sort that I could probably, La Cirque La Rouge, maybe a few others, have those still. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, there are movies, concert movies, movies with pop stars, but maybe A Hard Day's Night is the definitive one. So for me, just clicked voting right now. Voted for Hard Day's Night. Done. Move on. What do we got next? <laughs> okay. Number two, my second easiest one to vote in. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a movie that our film spotting advisory board members know, Sam and I put on the PowerPoint as a film we weren't really contemplating removing. Well, maybe we were, but we noticed all the Westerns we had in the tournament and we thought, even though this is a really good film, I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Love those performances. Does it really belong? Is it really needed here? And its run might be over. It's going up against the overall number one seed, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yep, 2001 it is. Didn't even have to think okay. about it as long as you talked. Midnight Cowboy, another Best Picture winner, a film that was part of a film spotting New Hollywood Marathon. A very good film. I really do love Midnight Cowboy. Speaking of good performances, John Voight, Dustin Hoffman. But it's up against Fellini's Eight and a Half, and that's, that's not really a choice. Abstaining for a few days. I am going to catch up with Midnight Cowboy, really? a blind spot for me, one of the egregious blind spots in this tournament, but I think I've got a slot in a couple of days where I can fit that in. I'm going to give it a watch and we'll then come back and vote. When you auditioned to be part of this show, Josh, you told me that you had participated in all of our marathons. So now that's a lie, I guess. You mean, no, I think it was Pantheon films that I'd seen all our Pantheon films. <laughs> That's true. Actually, I did ask that. You was that was the test. Okay. <laughs> which Next I, up. Which I passed, yeah. by the way. You passed it. You did. The Hustler, a movie you just caught up with, a mm. movie you liked very much, yes. a movie I like very much, that we both agree it's not as good as the Paul Newman film that beat out in the play-in to get into the big dance. It beat out HUD. It's going up against another Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, and we've never done a full review of Dr. Strangelove, but it's come up over the years. Mm -hmm. Like it, appreciate it. I'm a little lower on it than most people. Actually, in this case, I'm lower on it than The Hustler. I'm no voting, kidding. Voting The Hustler. Just got my vote. Okay, my final easy pick. The Manchurian Candidate, John Frankenheimer. Love this thriller. 
I like the remake too from Jonathan Demme, but it's going up against David Lean and Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, this is, it's tough and it's not. It, it's tough when you see the two titles and then you start thinking about them. And then you remember sitting in front of a screen in a dark theater with Lawrence of Arabia, which mm-hmm. I've had the opportunity to do, have not had that opportunity for the Manchurian candidate. Maybe that's the difference for me, but that's the reasoning I'm going to give. It's just such an incredible cinematic experience that I'm going to vote for it over Manchurian candidate. We move on to some of the hardest for me. And there were three that made me really angry. <laughs> that actually made me angry that I had to pick these here in round two. And the first one, Josh, I still haven't voted in. I actually haven't made a pick yet because I don't want to. I I can't. Bonnie and Clyde versus the man who shot Liberty Valance. Mm. So tough. Listeners know man who shot Liberty Valance. Fresh in my mind. Really liked it. Bonnie and Clyde. When is the last time I saw Bonnie and Clyde? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to go... I'm going to go with Bonnie and Clyde, and I don't feel good about it. Yeah, I think that's where I'm leaning. I think that's where I'm leaning. Why they, are you leaning that way? I, I, I don't know. I click it's probably. Help, help it's me probably, feel better about clicking vote. It's probably because I've paid more attention to Bonnie and Clyde is all. I taught a class at the University of Chicago on the new Hollywood. We talked about it as part of that marathon here on the show. I know its influence. I know its impact. Somehow feels more vital because it was the film that really – launched this whole revolution or one of the seminal films that there launched that. Whereas the man who shot Liberty Valance was a great film, but one of these films that was kind of the epitaph for yes. the Western. And yes. maybe, maybe in some ways it was the start of a new type of Western, the Neo Western. I am not enough of a historian to claim that, but something about Bonnie and Clyde just feels more vital, more necessary. I think that's where I'm leaning. Yeah. And I, th- and that's the logic that's swaying me as well. It, this is best of the 1960s. I'm not meaning to imply the man who shot Liberty Valance is a relic at all. I talked mm-hmm. about in our bonus show for Film Spotting Family Members, where we discussed Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and HUD, I talked about how Liberty Valance is still relevant today in terms of what individual rights mean in America, what gun rights mean, what community means. So it is a vital movie still. But if you're talking about best of the 60s, I think Bonnie and Clyde is one that is you know, has equal artistic merit and is also the better representative of the decade. Hmm. Okay. We already talked a little bit about In the Heat of the Night, and I mentioned how much I love this film. I thought it would lose to Playtime. I was wrong. Happy about it. In my own bracket, when I was just picking my favorites, I picked Heat of the Night over Playtime. I didn't think it would win, but it was my favorite. And now in round two, talk about seminal. Talk about influential night versus night in the heat of the night versus George Romero's night of the living dead. And despite how much I do love that best picture winner, I think I'm going horror. I think I'm yeah, going you horror. are. We talked about it. We talked about it here on the show and we loved this film. It was such a great rewarding revisit, such a smart film, such a provocative film. Still all these years later, they're both provocative films, but night of the living dead has the slight edge for me. Yeah. Top 10 horror of all time for me. Seminal for the 60s. Influential for horror in ways that we still feel today. And I would argue, you know, 
in the heat of the night has the important tag. I think that's a word that Dave Allen used when he wrote in um, to lobby for it over playtime. And I get that. That's true. But I think it's also something, as we talked about, you could apply to Night of the Living Dead, the racial element at play that is not Mm -hmm. pushed to the forefront as much as as it is in something like In the Heat of the Night, but is, you know, just as provocative for the time that it came out. It's one of the reasons it is my one of my favorite horror films of all time. So all that being said, I have to confess, and I can't vote, another blind spot for me, Adam, In the Heat of the Night. I thought for sure you remedied that one a few years back, but you haven't. I haven't. So I'm not going to vote in this one, but I am going to stump for the right choice, which is Night of the Living Dead. So number three, in terms of the picks that made me angry to have to vote on, we're going to combine Westerns and horror here. You said Night of the Living Dead was a top 10 all-time horror, and I agree with you. Well, I also think this film is an all-time top 10 horror. And look at me. Maybe I should be the one writing a book about horror films, Josh, because I'm picking Rosemary's Baby. I love it. Over over the Wild Bunch. Love it. I will as well, of course, as the person of writing the horror book. But, um, you know, it's not super easy. I think you probably would have Rosemary's Baby ranked higher than I do in terms of horror films. But, man, is it something. And the Wild Bunch... I appreciate as well, but it's an era thing too. Like Rosemary's Baby, I think captures and touches on things in terms of parenthood and feminism happening in the 60s that will then really kind of come to the fore in the 70s in some ways. I would argue that's a movie that points ahead to the 70s now that we're far removed from it in interesting ways. And The Wild Bunch is somewhat... It's definitely not a classic Western. I mean, it's, it'll, you know, it's, it's definitely of its time, but Mm -hmm. compared to Rosemary's Baby feels less so of the sixties than Rosemary's Baby does. There are at least five others that were almost impossible for me. I know this one's not hard for you, but Yojimbo over To Kill a Mockingbird, West Side Story over Cool Hand Luke for me. How about two titans of cinema? Back up, back up. Yeah. You're going West Side Story over Cool Hand Luke? I actually am. Yeah. I got to hear more about that because in in the, you know, because I can't get, up, get enough of madness. I also have a bracket predicting Adam's votes bracket. It's taped mm. up on my wall and I just, I pour <laughs> over it. I spend, uh-huh. I consult I'm Sam. Sure. We have our own Slack thread together trying to predict your votes. Oh no. I would have <laughs> for sure said that you yeah. were going with Cool Hand Luke. What is happening? Well, that's why it's in the toughest category for me, but I just remembered, I reflected back to when I saw West Side Story for the first time, which was in 2005 or six, when it was part of a musicals marathon. It was a blind spot for me. I didn't read Romeo and Juliet in high school. I didn't watch West Side Story or any other adaptations in high school, and I missed it, and I saw it, and... I swooned for it, and I swooned again when I brought my kids. I think, were you at that one with this, or was it a different screening? I brought Holden and Sophie when they were millimeter fast pretty at young, music box, 70 right? millimeter at the music box, and had the same magical reaction to it. I, I think it is the more significant achievement, even though my initial instinct was to be, oh, Paul Newman in one of his all-time great defining performances, the ultimate 
anti-hero of the 60s. And there's a bunch of great religious overtones and implications to Cool Hand Luke as well. But yeah, I, I like West Side Story more. I do. Hey, all I'm hearing is that you're voting for Richard Boehmer over Paul Newman. And if you want to live with that, fine, go for it. I'm, I'm at peace with that somehow. Finally, Josh, the last one I'll mention, kind of easy only because we just reckoned with this film and loved it so. But one that I'm sure will give a lot of people fits is staring at Fellini's La Dolce Vita against Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I mean, no, it's, it's Psycho. It's yeah. just, it's For Psycho. For me as well. Okay, okay well, good. Josh is, Josh is definitive about that, and I will be definitive as well. Any others, now that you're looking at the list that stand out to you? Josh, that maybe you're hovering over a little bit. So the apartment versus the battle of Algiers is one of those quintessential madness matchups that just, there's no way to think about those two films at once and compare them in any way. Where was the apart? Where did the apartment come up? What was that draft we were doing? And it was the best picture, the best draft. picture. Okay. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really help me. I, I want to vote for the apartment, but I feel like I'm neglecting my duty as a political human to the degree that I am by disregarding the battle of Algiers. Then again, the sexual politics at play in the apartment are awfully vital. And they are. I'm voting that way. So I'm going to go I with went, the apartment. Yeah, I went the apartment as well. Battle of Algiers, a film we've talked about here on yeah, Film yeah, Spotting. Yeah, we know it. We know and it well. It's, so it's we're not, really good, but this was an easy one for me, relatively easy to go with Billy Wilder and the apartment. We're not going to skimp, Josh. We're going to give you your due here, even though you're not the one who's winning our internal bracket prediction contest, even though I'm the one who is very much losing it. Almost 700 listeners submitted brackets. Nice. And after round one, four are tied at the top of the leaderboard. Four of them, Josh, four of those 700 got 31 out of a possible 32 matchups. Correct. Wow. Those listeners are Larissa Mulder, Cody Edmond, Oscari Vano, or Vanio. I'm sorry, Oscari. We're going to have to get a pronunciation from you here, especially as you're now doing well for the second consecutive year in Film Spotting Madness. A listener in Finland. He was a round one leader a year ago. And how about this? Film Spotting Madness godfather Mike Merrigan, who I think lost our internal bracket prediction contest last year is one of those four who picked 31 out of 32 correct. Oh boy. People He's are going to call for first. People are going to call shenanigans on this. <laughs> Maybe so. We also do have a film spotting family members only prediction contest. There are 8 family members tied for first all with 30 of 32 correct picks in round 1. So that leaves our little showdown here, Mike Merrigan, Sam, me, you, and also Brett Fisher who won Madness 2022. He lives in Portland, Oregon. One of his prizes is getting to join us in our contest. One thing we haven't really settled yet is what is the booby prize anymore for losing Film Spotting Madness? It always was that you had to watch and talk about the latest Adam Sandler Netflix movie. But, you know, the last one he did for Netflix, Hustle, was actually pretty good. Yeah, of course, because I didn't lose last year. So right. <laughs> finally, I get to dodge a bullet and it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a fine movie. I lose the year he puts out Hubie Halloween. Right. I mean, I had to I, watch Murder Mystery. Oh, I, I, I love to keep this going. But if you look on IMDb.com, 
the next thing he has is a Safdie Brothers project. So that's, that's no right. punishment. No, no, it's not. We need some ideas. The loser of this film spotting madness internal contest. What is their punishment? Can need it some be, good ideas? Can it be, although I've already expressed my interest, I was going to say, can it be the Adam Driver space dinosaur movie? <laughs> Sam is getting very angry. He's livid hearing you say that, but maybe so. Wasn't Mike Merrigan's punishment last year, him having to talk about that Sean Payton, the football movie that Kevin James was in? I thought that was the prize. I, I don't, I feel like I'm, or the punishment. I feel like this is some dream I had, some nightmare I had that has Mike such Merrigan a thing made even exists. I don't know if he's made good on that punishment yet. We will, we will sort all of that out. The standings after round one, yes. the part Josh really wants to get to. Mike Merrigan, tied for first overall, and he is number one in our contest. Brett Fisher, he had 30 of 32, correct? He's number 20 overall. Not bad. Josh, how about you? You only missed three in round one. Hey. You're 32nd overall. And then the masterminds, <laughs> the guys who set up the seating, who spent all this time deliberating which films would surely advance and be the correct choices. Well, Sam's in 145th. He missed five in round one. And I had what I am pretty sure is my worst showing ever. I don't think I've ever had more than four incorrect choices in round one. But then I never had as much trouble predicting the choices in round one, even before the results. 60s Madness was a real difficult one, Josh. And it shows in me only getting 26 of 32 right. I am in 281st place. Put you smack dab in the middle about, well, a little better than that. A little better than yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, none of the round one missteps affect future rounds, except Breathless. Brett Fisher's in the same boat. We all had Breathless advancing past round one. Brett and me, Josh, we're the only ones who had it advancing, though. To the next round, Josh, I really thought not only would it beat Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I thought of those two art house films, the Godar or the way more difficult to watch Bergman film persona. I thought Breathless would win. So yeah, I had Godard making it to the Sweet 16. That one's going to hurt. Yeah, I ended up riding Persona for a bit. So hurts me now, might work out down the road. Again, voting for round two of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 60s is live. Filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. Josh, the madness is over for now. That's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting and I'm at Larson on Film. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as $5 a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. March bonus. Sam's got some good ideas, but we haven't settled on a topic just yet. We love ideas for bonus content. If you're a family member or someone who aspires to become a family member, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And family members who have access to the entire archive, Josh, on whatever device they listen to podcasts, they've got some shows they can seek out that tie back to topics discussed on this show. Seven from 76, Rocky was part of that series, episode 821, 707, is when I reviewed favorably Creed 2. You hadn't seen it yet. And episodes 567 and 568 are 
our top 10 shows of 2015. Michael Phillips had Creed as his number eight film. And there's one more, speaking of Jonathan Majors, who we spoke of a lot during our review of Creed 3. If you go back to episode 733, you can hear my conversation with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails. Jimmy Fails, the star and co-writer, I believe, along with Joe Talbot, the co-writer and director, I think, of the Golden Brick winning The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I interviewed them on that episode, 733, and I know I had a specific question, Josh, about Jonathan Majors, this guy bursting onto the scene we've never heard of or seen before. He shows up on screen, blows us away, and I remember asking Jimmy and Joe about Majors as an actor, what makes him so good, and some of the choices he makes on screen, and I know they provided some real insight. So if you're a Majors fan, you may want to go back and seek out that show. Did you ask them? If you could cast Jonathan Majors as an MCU figure, who would it be? <laughs> I did not okay. do that, though. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Filmspottingfamily.com. In wide release, you can see the Josh Larson recommended Scream 6. You can see Champions with Woody Harrelson as a temperamental pro basketball coach who trains a Special Olympics team. That's directed by Bobby Fairley, who is reuniting with Harrelson. They, of course, work together on 1996's Kingpin. And yeah, the Adam Driver Space Dino movie, 65, not not a sequel to the Roger Maris film, 61 with Barry no. Pepper. No, it's a dinosaur movie. And it's not called just 65. a dinosaur movie, as you said. Space dinosaur movie. Space Come on, Adam. dinosaur Move movie. Move those tickets. Next week, The Big Lebowski at 25. You can't wait. We can't wait. Join us for that and the first film and our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon. We'll talk about Mizuguchi's Sancho the Bailiff. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavandero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.